Some say John the Baptist, others, others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, But who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. This is the very word of God. Good morning. So why do you go to church? Lots of answers, I'm sure, to that question. Lots of reasons why people choose not to go attend a church. Um, but this morning, on Church Planting Sunday, I realize I'm preaching to a choir today because you're here or you're tuning into the live stream because you care enough about this congregation or this church to make it a point to your life. But I want to stir us all up a little bit more with why we do this, what the church is, what it's all about, why church planting matters about as much as anything could possibly matter on planet Earth. The church matters. It matters because of who Jesus is. It matters because of the community that Jesus is building. And it matters because of the mission that he is sending us on. The identity of Jesus, the community of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. The identity of Jesus, the community of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. This passage that we're looking at this morning speaks to these three issues, among other things, and it is really a critical and central passage in the Gospels and in the life and ministry of Jesus. You've undoubtedly Heard these verses before, thought about these verses quite a bit. But let's, let's think about them in these three arenas this morning. Again, the identity of Jesus, the community of Jesus, and the mission of Jesus. We, we've, we're in a series called The King and His Victory. We learned earlier this year the nature of the kingdom of God, what the kingdom of God is all about, why when Jesus says... Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That should be a rallying cry for all of us and something around all of our lives are oriented. My, my, my concern, though, is that for many of us who grew up in the Christian faith, there's a disconnect between the realities of the kingdom of God and what that actually means for our day-to-day -day lives. And so a text like this can be very helpful for us to understand, again, the significance of the church, it begins by pointing us to the reality of who Jesus is. Because the church of Jesus Christ has one and only one foundation. It's Jesus, the Messiah, our Lord. Jesus Christ, 
the son of the living God. In other words, before we can understand the church, we need to understand Jesus. We need to know who he is. Could there be a more important question than the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? And the church must be prepared to answer that question and answer it clearly. Now, in our passage this morning, the identity of Jesus is of utmost concern. Jesus asks the disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And then he turns and asks them, but who do you say that I am? But first, notice that Jesus refers to himself in verse 13 as the Son of Man. It is the title that he uses for himself most frequently in the four Gospels. What, what did he mean by it? On the one hand, the phrase is, might simply be a reference to the fact that he is a human being, a, a humble way of referring to himself. But the phrase also occurs in Daniel's prophecy in Daniel 7 as a reference to a human being who possesses an authority that would normally be reserved for God himself. Jesus Use the phrase for himself while he hints at his upcoming suffering and death in Matthew 12, verse 40, as well as his future exaltation and glory in Matthew 26, 64. So on the one hand, the phrase points to Jesus and his humanity. On the other hand, it refers to Jesus having some sort of divine authority. So when Jesus uses the phrase, we're not quite sure in which of these two emphases he means to highlight. He, he seems to use the phrase, the Son of Man, to refer to himself both to reveal something about who he is and also to conve- conceal something of his true identity. On the one hand, he seems to be claiming something rather bold about his identity, almost putting himself equal with God. Is that what he's saying? But on the other hand, he's claiming something really humble about himself, the son of man, something lowly, a human being. So Jesus, even in his own day, was somewhat of an enigma. The question of his identity was an important one. So he asks the disciples, Who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street about Jesus of Nazareth? First century question. And the word on the street was, well, perhaps he's John the Baptist, now risen from the dead. Perhaps he's the prophet Elijah, who was believed to appear before the arrival of the Messiah, according to the prophet Malachi. The Old Testament prophet Jeremiah was another option, perhaps because both Jesus and Jeremiah prophesied a message of doom for Judah and the temple. Not exactly a popular preacher in his day. At any rate... The basic assumption was that Jesus was probably one of the prophets. It doesn't necessarily mean that first century Jews walked around thinking that Jesus was some reincarnation of Elijah or Jeremiah or one of the other Old Testament prophets, but that he was a prophet like them in some way. As he went around from village to village, people in the first century had in their minds a category that you and I often don't have, that is, a prophet of God. That's what people generally thought about him. And as a prophet, he was revolutionary in some ways. Now, it's important to note that Jesus does not deny that identification. He was, no doubt, understood by the general public to be a prophet, and Jesus understood himself as a prophet. 
He wasn't merely a teacher going around sharing timeless truths. Like Israel's prophets of old, his task was to warn of a coming disaster and call people to respond, to heed the warning. So if we're going to understand Jesus rightly, you can't think of him merely as a teacher. He was a teacher, a rabbi, but he was more than that. You can't look to Jesus as somebody that you could just learn information from. You have to see him as a prophet, an official spokesman for God who's coming to announce something significant is on the horizon, something that you dare not ignore. So, again, to refer to Jesus as a prophet is not wrong, but it's also not enough. He's a prophet, but he's more than a prophet. Jesus turns to his disciples and asks them directly, but who do you say that I am? And that's the question everyone must face, everyone must answer. Who do you say about Jesus? Who is he? Peter is the first to answer this all-important question. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Now, let's remind ourselves, the word Christ is the Greek rendering of the Hebrew word, which means the anointed one, the, the Messiah. But what is the Messiah? And that's not even as simple a question to answer as you might think, for In Jesus' day, there were various ideas and opinions swirling around about the identity of the Messiah. It basically means king of the Jews. The one anointed, that is, as a king over God's people. But the title is reserved specifically for not just a king, but the the king, the great king. The, The one who's going to bring Israel to its final God-ordained goal. The Messiah would be God's agent through whom Israel's exile would end. Through Messiah, there was to be a new exodus. And the present evil age would give way to a new age, an age to come. This was the messianic expectation. This is what every first century Jew was diligently praying, hoping, looking for. Just as you say in the Apostles' Creed that we are, we believe that Jesus is going to return. That's what we're looking for. So a first century Jew is looking for the arrival of God's anointed one, his Messiah, his king, to finally lead God's people in a new exodus, into a new age, Something so transformative that it could only be spoken of in terms of a passing away of an old age and the arrival of a new one. So it's not hard for us to understand then that the claim to be the Christ is not something that a sane person would go around claiming himself to be. It would not be taken as a prideful claim like a really talented athlete claiming to be the best at their own sport. Nobody would go around calling themselves Messiah if that's all that they were trying to say. To call yourself the Messiah, the Christ, would be taken as a threat for those who did not believe the person's identity. This is not something you just scoff off as somebody who's just going around boasting about themselves. This is a serious claim. 
think of the politician who stands for the policies that you despise most. You got somebody in mind, probably. That person that's on the news and you're like, oh, I can't stand. Think of that person. To say that Jesus is the Christ is to say you are subscribing to his agenda. And Jesus' agenda was not exactly what anyone else had in mind. It surprised even his closest followers quite often. Jesus wasn't just a Christ going around kind of messing up people who didn't believe in him. Jesus was constantly unsettling those, start with the disciples, who recognized him for who he truly was. That's what it means to say, I believe that Jesus is the Christ. He is a leader, a ruler, a king whose agenda I yield to completely. That doesn't go down easily for anybody. And this is the reason why at the end of our passage in verse 20, it's at this point in his life that Jesus, this is surprising to us, again, as Christians, strictly charged the disciples to tell no one he was the Christ. See, the the time has not yet come for Jesus to be fully revealed to the world in this way because he has some work to be done first. Some reorientation around the reality of who Jesus is and what he's come to do. Now, the secret's not going to stay hidden for long. Jesus' intention, of course, is to be made known to the world as the Messiah. That's the day we live in. No point on trying to keep this secret. We're to be bold proclaimers that Jesus is the anointed one, the Messiah, the Christ. Messiah cannot remain hidden, not if he's going to do what Messiah was supposed to do, right? Lead the people of God on a new exodus into a new age where the old age has passed away, a new age has come. If that's the kind of Messiah that Jesus is, if that's who he is, this can't stay hidden. This is revolutionary. This is going to get out. If he's going to lead his people out of Egypt and on a new exodus, then there's going to be a people gathered around him, a community of Jesus, a community of Jesus who acknowledge who he is and who subscribe wholeheartedly to his agenda. This is not incidental to Jesus and his identity. It it doesn't just happen by accident. Jesus is deliberate about building his community. As verse 18 says, Jesus proclaims, I will build my church. Immediately after Peter's declaration, Jesus responds to Peter with some pretty high praise, don't you think? Blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah. Now look at what it says. Peter is blessed because, Jesus explains, flesh and blood have not made this plain to you. This knowledge of Jesus' real identity as the Christ came directly from God the Father. Now listen, Christian. 
1 John 5, verse 1 says this, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. If you see Jesus as who he really is, the revolutionary leader that Messiah was sure to be, this is not something you have figured out on your own. This is not something you can just be taught. This is not something you can even merely be raised in, find yourself believing just because you've always believed it. And and this is a crucial point in understanding the Christian faith. To be raised within the Christian community is an enormous privilege. We just had, what, three babies born in the last month or so at Crosstown? We have child dedications. We commit to raising these children within the Christian faith and the community. What an amazing privilege. Many of us grew up in the church, in the Christian community. Praise God. Enormous privilege. But Messiah's people, Christians, are not defined by their ethnicity, their religious background. They are defined by faith in Jesus as Messiah. The kind of faith that no one would ever come to were it not revealed to them by God himself. If you are a Christian, if you believe Jesus is the Messiah, the King, then guess what? You didn't get there by your own ingenuity and your own thoughts. You got there by the revelation of God himself, by the new birth. Today, there are millions of people who believe that Jesus is the Christ. Praise God. Like Pastor Darrell was saying, we worship this morning on this day with millions of people in churches in every country who proclaim Jesus is the Christ. That's astounding. You should be astounded by that. You are a part of something mad. You're a part of the community of Jesus. But there was a first person who said it. This hasn't always been happening. This began somewhere. And every time in the biblical story where this begins, we usually recognize and highlight the person who was kind of at the beginning of that. We know as Christians in Genesis chapter 12, the call of God to form a people for himself began with a word coming to Abraham. And now we have the Abrahamic faith that recognizes Abraham's obedience, his response to God's call, a significant person in our faith history. So don't be afraid here of what Jesus says about Peter in verse 18. He gives to him a new name, a name which means rock. And of course, the Roman Catholic Church wants to make too much of Peter based on verse 18. And Protestants tend to have an allergy to anything that even smells like Roman Catholicism. And so we want to stay far away from it. And sometimes that's a good instinct. Sometimes it's not so good. It's okay that Jesus calls Peter the rock. 
He's the first one to make this extraordinary confession that you and I don't get too excited about when somebody says, Jesus is the Christ. You should be, wow, nobody says that unless God himself has regenerated them. Of course, you could say the words, but I mean believe that Jesus is the Christ. That only happens by the supernatural work of God. So here's Peter. He's the first to make this extraordinary claim, but Peter will not be alone. Starting with Peter and the rest of the disciples, Jesus promises to build his community, to build a new Israel, a new people of God. Now, now ethnic Israel is not entirely abandoned by Messiah. His first followers are all Jewish. The movement originates within Israel's own story. But this community is now reformed and expanded in a way that the Old Testament always said would happen, but people never anticipated. You see... When we hear the word church in verse 18, we bring to it all sorts of things that are not implied by this context. Think about it just a minute. There was no church, like you're thinking, in the first century when Jesus makes this statement. And yet, none of the disciples, hearing what Jesus says in verse 18, said, said, wait, 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 time out. Church? What, What is church? Right? I mean, they, they, they didn't start imagining in their minds pews and steeples. Yes? So what were they thinking when Jesus says, I will build my church? And the, the idea here is actually pretty simple. If, if Jesus is indeed the Messiah, then central to that identity would be an assembly, a gathering, a collection of people all centered around, all with Jesus at the center, all gathered around the Messiah. This isn't hard to understand, is it? If Jesus is the Messiah leading people in a new exodus, then those people, that gathering, that congregation is what Jesus means when he says the church. That's what the disciples would have understood him to be saying. If you don't have a Messiah, if you don't have a community of people around the Messiah, if you want to know if Jesus failed in his mission, then just look and see if there are Jesus people still existent today. And whoa, right? Overwhelmingly so. So this is what a church fundamentally is. So when you think about church, think like the disciples what is a church at its bare essence? Fundamentally, what is a church? This is the church that Jesus promised to build. He didn't promise, let's be, watch out. He didn't promise to build the organization that we might call church. He, he didn't make any promises to what we call crosstown. This is an enormous, enormous privilege for us to be a church together. But if this church called Crosstown ever ceases to exist, the mission of Jesus has not failed. It's so much bigger, so much bigger. That's why for us at Crosstown, it has always mattered that we are affiliated, that we associate with other entities. Because this thing is not about us. It's not about... I saw a couple, my kids in catechism were wearing their Crosstown shirts. Here they are over here today. 
And I like that. It's kind of cool. You know, we, we do this. We have a little spirit of core around it. That's, that's great. Yes. But be careful. Be careful. The church is so much more. And we are a part of something bigger than that. Isn't that amazing? You're not amazed. Pastor Daryl, we're trying to stir these people up today. I'm telling you, listen, we got to get our minds around what Jesus is saying in this incredible passage. These are the community of people he's building around himself. And surely this means if Jesus is going to build his church, this means that the church will grow numerically and external growth. Maybe not cross town, but the church, absolutely. More and more people will come to believe and confess the same thing that Peter did. And every time, every time the waters of baptism are stirred here or in the church globally, we should be amazed. God is at work. God is at work. But just as importantly, listen, Christian, Christian, just as importantly, Jesus is building his church internally. The Apostle Paul refers to this kind of building in Ephesians 4 as the community gathered around Jesus speaks in love the truth. What do you think that truth is? It's the truth about Jesus. It's the truth about who Jesus is and what Jesus has done as the community gathered around Jesus speaks the truth about Jesus to one another. Guess what happens? Here's what Paul says. We grow up. We grow up in every way into him who is the head into Christ. The goal of the church and its internal growth is never, never to make you a disciple of anyone other than Jesus. That's it. But the way we do that is by speaking the truth about Jesus, who he is, what he has done to one another. And as we do that, amazed at King Jesus and what he's done for us and who he is, as we speak this truth to one another, growth happens Growth, we grow up, how? In every way, into him who is the head. To be one of the Messiah's people then is to be in community with the rest of his people. Let me say it again. To be one of the Messiah's people is to be a community in community with the rest of his people. If Jesus is leading us on a new exodus, don't think you get to have this little spiritual exodus on your own, disconnected from the people of God. That's not where the action's happening. It's happening in his church. It's happening in his people, among his people, with his people. This is what he is up to. This is what he's promised to do. His promise is to build his church And it's carried out as his people are joined together, Paul says, like a human body with each part working properly so that it builds itself up in love. If you are a follower of Christ, you have a part to play in the community of faith, which is why we can't just show up, listen, leave. We've got to connect with one another in gospel community because this is how Jesus will build his church. This is how Jesus will build it. He doesn't have a different way of doing it. This is how he has revealed he will do it. Somebody, I I need some help this morning. Okay, thank you. Man, Autumn, you're with me. I appreciate it. This matters. Listen, 
we're given our life to being in community, pursuing Jesus together. And don't think there's not going to be bumps along the way and bruises. You get around the community of people of God, we're not Christ, and we're going to mess you up. Jesus knows this. He's bigger than that. He's greater than that. So don't stay away. Press in. Because Jesus is the one who's responsible for the building of his church, we can be sure that his church will succeed. He says, I will build my church, verse 18. And look what he says. And the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Now again, what does that mean? It means, yes, it it does mean this. The community of Jesus will be invincible, unstoppable. Don't you, again, don't you think that's, that's because there's something awesome about us apart from Jesus? The, the community of Jesus is unstoppable, invincible because of Jesus. It's only because of Jesus. But the statement that he makes here is not a figure of speech. I'm trying, I, I think most of us read that verse and we think of something like, man, that team is so good, so unstoppable, not even hell could stop them from winning a championship. And we all go, ha ha, yeah, that's fun. That, that's how we read that verse. Jesus is not joking. He's not using a metaphor. He's speaking rather literally. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. Jesus' primary assertion here is not that no human power can successfully oppose the church. That's altogether obviously not true. There are plenty of our brothers and sisters, and Pastor Dell referred to this earlier, plenty of our brothers and sisters in Christ who are worshiping Jesus today, who've worshiped Jesus today in hiding for fear of their lives. We forget this, don't we? And Jesus says the gates of hell will not prevail. So what does Jesus mean? Verse 13 says that Jesus spoke these words in the district of Caesarea Philippi. Now you got to get some help to understand this. I did. The location is at the base of Mount Hermon in the northern part of Palestine. It's con- it was considered in Jesus' day to be a primary pagan religious center. Jesus means what he says. He is building a community of people around himself who will put the very gates of hell, that is, the realm of the dead, under assault. And if Jesus really is the Messiah, there is no question who's going to win this war. There's no question. But here's what it also means, church. Listen. It also means that the church, the true church, the real people of God has a very clear and consequential mission. It is promised to succeed in the mission that Jesus has for the church, not the mission we might have for the church. Why do you go to church? What is its mission? What's it all about? 
if we get this mission out of focus, maybe I should say it this way, when we get the mission of Jesus out of focus, I can almost, I don't want to overstate it. Almost, I'll just say almost. Yeah, I can almost guarantee you, you will become disillusioned with the church. This church or any church. doesn't matter. You could go to a different, go ahead, go join another one. You're going to get disillusioned there too if you get the mission of Jesus out of focus. So what the mission of Jesus, two things. One, who's the real enemy? The church's enemy is not of this world. The gates of hell, the realm of the dead. So don't make other people the target of your fighting for the faith. Other people are not the enemy. We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. We wrestle against principalities and powers, the very powers of death and hell itself. But don't take that to mean that the church's enemy is careless about this world. The first time we read about this enemy, we find him very much engaged with this world in the Garden of Eden. Very much on the attack. So if we're going to target the gates of hell, we're going to find ourselves engaging with the world around us in every way imaginable. The kinds of work you do, the conversations you have and the places you go and the people you meet. We are the people of God armed with the message of the kingdom. So we're going to find ourselves engaging and interacting in the things of this world. We should not be the kinds of people who are avoiding those types of engagements and conflicts. We should, be find, we should be the kinds of people, because of who Jesus is, because of the mission he has, that find ourselves right in the middle of it. So this week, another young African-American man was murdered by a police officer. Are you, are you offended that I said murdered? Jesus would engage right here. Something is wrong in this world, and the cries for justice, criminal justice doesn't just mean punishment. It means treating people as human beings. This is something Jesus would be finding himself right smack in the middle of. So don't you stay out of it thinking that that's engaging in kingdom realities. It's not. Jesus would be there, but he would be there in such a way that's always making everyone think differently, finding Another, a new path, a new exodus, a new way because of the realities of the kingdom of God. So despite what appears to be happening as Christians engage in the world, the church cannot lose because the gates of hell are coming down. Death itself is going to fall. We're going to find ourselves in uncomfortable places and in conversations that maybe make you think in a way you've never thought before. But may the kingdom of God be what orients all of our lives around the realities of God's kingdom. The second thing, not only who the enemy is, but then notice this and we're done. Jesus says, I will build my church. Gates of hell will not prevail against it. And then he says this. He says, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. Keys, what are keys? Keys, 
let people in or they keep people out. We get an idea from what Jesus says in Luke chapter 4, verse 23, that the keys of the kingdom are wielded, are used as the gospel of the kingdom is proclaimed. But this gospel proclamation is not a mere packaged presentation that you learned in Sunday school when you were six years old. Not to denigrate that. This kind of gospel proclamation is bigger than that. It's more applicable than that. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. We have a message that speaks application into every circumstance and situation that anybody on planet earth could possibly find themselves in. All of it. Name an issue. Christianity has something to say that's probably not what you think about that issue. See, in Luke chapter 11, verse 52, Jesus rebukes the teachers of the law for taking away the key to knowledge by how they failed to read and apply the scriptures. Jesus rebukes teachers of the law, religious people, for taking away the key to knowledge by their failure to read and apply the scriptures the way they are meant to be read and applied. So in other words, how we read and apply our scriptures will either help or hinder people from seeing Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. This is the news that brings people from every kingdom of darkness, every political spectrum, every viewpoint, worldview that's out there. The message of the kingdom cuts straight across it all, bringing us into a new exodus, a new way. And it starts with us. It starts with the people of God. It starts with us seeking first his kingdom, reorienting all of our lives around the reality of who Jesus is and not by some other worldview or philosophy. This is the mission. This is the mission that Jesus sends his community on. This is the mission of the community of the people who know Jesus is the Christ. Let's pray together.